This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network in Education, the podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Madden Gihuli, and I'm a public school teacher based in London, England. I'm going to be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to James, Lauren, and Edward about their book, Commemorative Literacies and Labors of Justice, Resistance, Reconciliation, and Recovery in Buenos Aires and Beyond, uh, published by Routledge in 2022. Welcome, James, Lauren, and Edward. Oh, well, thanks so much for this. For this invitation, Matt, I really appreciate it. Uh, so I'll introduce myself first. I'm James D'Amico. I'm a professor of literacy, culture, and language education in the Department of Curriculum and Instruction at Indiana University. That's in Bloomington, Indiana in the U.S. I'm a former elementary or primary school and middle school teacher from the state of New Jersey. Uh, my teaching and scholarship focus on what's called critical literacy. That is the analysis of all different kinds of texts. Uh, written, visual, multimedia, spoken, performance, etc., and the questioning of our attitudes and values and beliefs and our practices, including our own, to help advance more equitable and, and just, justice-centered experiences or outcomes. So uh, some of my, my teaching is in the area of what's called content literacy or disciplinary literacy. That is, I work with future teachers and, and try to emphasize how they can help their future students become more strategic and successful readers and writers in any content area. And this includes uh, social studies, uh, which in the United States, social studies is this inherently multidisciplinary uh, subject area. It encompasses history, economics, psychology, sociology, geography, anthropology, political science, or civics. Although the lion's share of instructional attention is usually focused on history in United States classrooms. Um, and the content in social studies includes grappling with complex problems and issues, um, big topics like globalization and colonization and slavery, war and peace, um, as well as particular policy proposals, you know, such as the Green New Deal to address the climate crisis here in the U.S. So this content emphasis means it's important to do our best as educators to understand uh, social, political, and historical events. Um, and with that is there's an abiding emphasis on justice and addressing injustices, and, which is really the foundation of this book project, uh, Commemorative Literacies and Labors of Justice, which is to understand how people commemorate the past with particular conceptions of, and ideas of justice in mind. Um, so more, more specifically, the impetus for this project was uh, rooted in a trip I made to Buenos Aires, Argentina in 2006. Uh, it was during a week-long 30th anniversary commemoration of the 1976 military coup in Argentina. And during that trip in 2006, I documented what was happening at different sites while I was there. Um, and I decided I wanted to return to Argentina to more intentionally document and try to understand these commemorative events. And that led to a, a trip a decade later in 2016, which is the, the basis of the book. Yeah, that's great. Thanks so much. Lauren, do you want to go next? Yeah, thanks so much, Madden. Um, so I do my work in the field of religious studies. Uh, my research is focused primarily on trying to understand transformations in Palestinian identity that have occurred since the first Palestinian uprising with the Aldo monks, the late 1980s. I spent seven years in the Middle East. I finished my university studies beginning in 1986. You know, so I was there for the first two or three years of the Palestinian uprising, momentous event, and 
that event um, transformed my life, set the direction of my life. Um, spent some time in Egypt, went back, worked in the Gaza Strip, and decided I was a meaningless teacher at times, um, working in secondary level education, uh, but then also later working with Palestinian professionals who were seeking to come to the United States to pursue ad studies in their different fields. So, in the which as a foreign language. Uh, but in 1993, I decided I wanted to change careers, and I was interested in with religious dialogue work. Um, was especially, uh, you know, wanting to understand better the phenomenon of the rise of the Islamic resistance movement, Hamas, uh, and its effects as they started on Palestinian identity. So I ended up um, pursuing uh, a theology degree in interreligious um, studies. Um, inter interfaith studies at the Lutheran School of Theology in Chicago here in the United States. Uh, and then I had a chance to take a, a seminar at the University of Chicago uh, in religion and political um, violence and was really drawn to analyzing religion from this more sociological direction. I ended up doing my dissertation research field work um, in the occupied territories in 99-2000 as the first as the uh, Oslo um, process was beginning the collapse. Uh, and wrote a book on that. Um, I, I wrote another book um, focusing on the Palestinian community in Chicago that also took up these questions of religion and identity uh, that came out of and I'm watching their work um, focusing on Palestinian on the Palestinian community in Denmark and Sweden. I'm hoping to uh, go on next summer uh, to begin that work. Just just got some funding for that. My um, so my work, you know, R.E.T., where does that come from? So it came out of the blue. It came out of my relationship with James, um, friendship with James. Um, so in September 2013, when I was working on my project in Chicago, James called me and um, wanted to discuss these photographs that he had taken through that trip he described in 2006 uh, for the 30th, um, when he was there for a uh, conference, right, through that 30th um, commemoration. Um, and the reason why he approached me, if I remember right, James, you can correct me on this, but um, you wanted to talk through ritual and commemoration, um, how this is showing up in some of these images. And these, so these concepts of ritual and commemoration were and are uh, really central to my field of religious studies, and it informed my own research on Palestinians. After multiple conversations on the phone and in person with James, um, we ended up publishing an article that um, laid, basically laid the groundwork for it. For this book. In that article, we found our interpretive method, you know, working with these photographs as texts, uh, and explored the themes of commemoration, protest, and public testimony. We also found ourselves picking up this question of our response to the responsibilities as outside observers. Uh, a key idea that emerged for us here had to do with what we called critical participatory solidarity. Uh, this concept became important to us at the end of our book, the 40th anniversary commemoration of 2016. And in that final chapter, chapter six, we introduced this idea of commemorative ethics, mm -hmm. which echoes that earlier thinking of our critical solidarity. I can say more about that later in our conversation. But the main point I want to make here is you know, that this, in terms of my role in this project, it really has its roots in that earlier work that James and I did with some of the ideas and methods we listened to the book got through starting an earlier collaboration. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, Edward? Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, so I am um, an assistant professor of history at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. But prior to this position, I started uh, as a graduate student in history at Indiana University, which is where James teaches. And at some point in my graduate school career, there was... Um, a call, a request for someone who knew something about Argentina to join an in-progress project, which is the project that James and Lauren have just been describing. And so I signed on to help kind of provide a little bit of historical context. Um, initially, James, Lauren, you can correct me, I'm not sure that the idea was that I would become a permanent member of the, the long-term project, but, um, but it felt like we ended up fitting together fairly well. And so I stayed on and, and I was interested in the project. My research outside of this specific book deals with labor legislation and labor movements in Argentina during the 1970s and 1980s. So during this period of the most recent military dictatorship, which is such a big part of the background of the book, right? Um, the research that uh, was done in 2016 took place 
during the 40th anniversary um, commemorative events of the March 24, 1976 coup. And so I think that my role in the project was to help bring perhaps a more historically informed or historically grounded perspective on Argentina. It's some place that I have uh, now worked for a long time over the last 15 years. I've, I've lived there on and off for maybe four or five of those 15 years. I've spent a lot of my adult life moving back and forth between Argentina and the United States. And so I think that that was kind of my my position within the project was to help to to ground some of the analysis and some of the reading of these sources that were uh, found, extracted during 2016 um, in this longer historical arc. Great. Thanks so much, Edward. Um, all right. So Look, what what we're going to do is is that the book has six chapters following the the introduction and and then an epilogue. So today we're going to go through in a linear fashion each of the chapters and briefly touch on some of the core focus of each chapter, um, and then uh, hopefully have some time, hopefully to have some time to maybe make some very brief comments about um, the current political uh, environment in Argentina. Obviously, just to tie in. Um, you know the 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 really um, critical relevance of this text to what's what I believe is is currently happening in Argentina with the current election cycle. So um, your first chapter, setting the stage, um, can you please just tell us about the three focal sites, or as you define them through the spatial lens, uh, spaces of experience, perhaps. Also briefly explaining to our audience how and why each of the focal sites of study uh, was chosen in linking uh, to your collective areas of scholarly expertise. Sure, I'll start with that, Madden. Again, this is James. Um, well, our goal was to, to understand commemorative events at different sites in, in Buenos Aires that had an historical significance. So we uh, were in a range of sites, but we were intentional about three in particular. Uh, the first site were uh, two university spaces um, where faculty and students were disappeared during the dictatorship. And that was one of those spaces um, is where I was in 2006 and had my first experience to these commemorative practices. So that was really important. We wanted to go back to a university space because it was such a powerful experience for me. Um, and we reached out to some some faculty members there and made some, had some connections um, with people there too, so facilitated our uh, entry into those spaces. The second site um, was a Catholic church that uh, during the dictatorship was a haven um, for some of the most vulnerable members of the population at, at that time. These were people who were targeted by the, targeted by the military uh, government and they were deemed subversive. Um, and this is where Lauren's um, expertise um, and experience um, came into play and, and one of our contexts um, Liliana, um, who is a professor at DePaul University in Chicago. She helped us make that connection with a, a close friend of hers at the time, um, who was the priest of that particular Catholic church. So, and that, and that, that church has a lot of historical significance, which we go into in that chapter. Um, and then, so the third site was this former clandestine uh, detention center where thousands of Argentines during the dictatorship were held, um, tortured, or killed. Um, and that space has been transformed into a museum. So those were the three sites that we um, saw these commemorative practices um, that were particularly compelling and powerful. So, and that led us to our, our our framework. So I'll just say something briefly about that and before handing it over to Lauren and Eddie. So in terms of our framework, commemorative literacies, um, we can start with the definition, definition of literacy. Um, and for me, that is, uh, ways we make meaning of the world um, that are highly context-dependent. So we can think of literacy not as a set of just neutral skills, but as these social processes or practices that have cultural and historical roots. You know, we enter into enter we enter into uh, different spaces. Uh, you know, with a range of our personal experiences, and we strive to construct meaning in those spaces. So in the case of this project, these meaning-making practices or literacies were tied to particular commemorative events. So we think that we can be understood as commemorative literacies. Um, and to more fully flesh out this idea of commemorative literacies, we need to engage with, with other core concepts of memory, 
space, and justice. So Eddie, I'll say a little, a little something about uh, memory. Sure, thank you. This is Eddie again. Um, yeah, memory was a, a really key concept, and it's something else that um, I think all of us in different ways work on in our other research. Um, but one of the things that was most important for us was to understand memory not as simply something that individuals do, but instead memory as a relationship between both an individual and a collective, but also between past and present, right? And one of the things that we saw and one of the things that we try to make sense of in the book is how memory itself is mobilized, how it's used, how it's constructed and reconstructed in order to fit uh, contemporary sort of political exigencies, right? The necessity of the moment uh, necessarily informs and remakes how people remember. And so as we'll get into when we get into the content chapters here in a second, one of the things that we really worked on was reading these texts as um, indicative of the ways memory was being remade at this moment as these commemorations were going on. And there was a very specific political context in 2016, which I'll talk about in just a second, that for a considerable sector of Argentine society that sort of demanded a reconsideration of memory and a remobilization of memory. And so memory as relational between individuals and society, but memory is also this uh, fluid relationship between past and present. It's really how we approach that concept and how we deployed it in order to make sense of the text that we that we encountered. Yeah, and uh, so picking up where Evan just um, left off, this is Lauren. Um, so space and justice were our other two really cute concepts in the book. Um, the three sites we used within our field work provided a unique perspective on the abuses of the dictatorship, uh, be it at Cessna, uh, the University of Buenos Aires, and the Church of Santa Cruz. And they did so by staging commemorations of the disappeared in differing ways. British uh, geographer Dory Massey's work on space proved to be especially helpful to us as we thought about these issues. Massey speaks of students of the simultaneity of unfinished ongoing stories, which she calls stories so far, uh, that are always in the process of being made and remade, fucking jams on Britain's just, um, just now. So what this means is that space changes from moment to moment as people rework their stories about it or bring new stories too. So space is also, um, also shapes our stories, it's adjunctive, as James said. It narrates as much of it is narrated. So when we enter a particular space, we find ourselves engaging with already existing narratives. We begin to absorb and interact with these narratives. Um, we bring our own stories into these interactions, of course, and in doing so, shift the narratives uh, that constitute the space. So determining the existing narratives and then tuning to how our own stories were interacting uh, with them uh, became really important to us as we uh, began to focus on our analysis on Jewish sites. We also became aware of this process of how space and narrative overlap. So, for example, at the Accessma Space for Memory, we encountered an exhibit honoring the assassinated Bishop Enrique Angelero. And Hilary also featured centrally in memorials to the disappeared at the Church of Santa Cruz. The intersecting of these Angelero narratives brought these two spaces together. And in doing so, they blurred religious and secular memories. Was Amhedeli a martyr in the Christian sense of very witness to Christ's love for the oppressed, something that came across from the strongly in Santa Cruz? Or was he a witness to the cause of justice and human rights and the defense of democracy in the Richard Tyler Nation, which really seemed to come through at the Eclesma exhibit? The narrative of symbolic overlapping space opened up this question for us of the meaning of the period of state terror in important ways. The other concept, justice, um, that we checked up in the book um, was important as well. So our participation in the 40th anniversary of commemoration has really forced us to confront the links Argentines themselves were making between their own history of dictatorship and state violence in other places such as Syria, Palestine, and South Africa. We need images for making these associations explicitly, um, evoking them. These transnational connections invoke fundamental principles of human rights that implicated us as citizens. Remember, there were um, images of Obama's weather, Obama, Obama get out. Um, references to the vulture capitalists in New York City, you know, who had bought up their Jeep Argentine debt and so forth. So as a result, we could not simply assume the role of disinterested researchers. Instead, we had to grapple with our responsibilities. How were we to respond to the demand to the demand that ruled the must of never again? Would we stand with Argentines demanding accountability uh, for the disappeared? Um, but then 
this act of standing with others is not a straightforward matter either. Uh, there are several ethical issues that require attention that for standing with others. It's not to become a marginalizing of others, yet another imposition of injustice. Uh, this is what our reflections on commemorative ethics have something to get at, and that's something again, that I hope we can get to um, late in the conversation. Thanks so much, Lauren. Yeah, absolutely. We need to, we will absolutely make time for those discussions. I find that the construction um, of commemorative literacies as a kind of historical analysis um, that you have done in this book is is, a re- is really generative in approach that kind of very intentionally makes dimensional that which is often flattened simply within historical analysis. And I think this contribution to the literature in your book uh, is not simply that, although of course the production of knowledge uh, for knowledge's sake is indeed arguably a worthy goal, but yeah, this this project is both a contribution to the literature as well as a kind of dialogical engagement with justice-centered movements, and, and, and I find that a most certainly grounded uh, intellectual work. So chapter two, historical background. Now there is a lot of potentially relevant history that one could know to better inform how they come to this project, obviously. so. Um, as you state, it's it's challenging to decide uh, what is the most crucial to include. Um, how did you decide what needed to be included in this chapter of historical background and what did you do, or what did you, broadly speaking, end up including? Yeah, absolutely. So again, this is Eddie, uh, the historian, appropriately fielding this question. I think that this was one of the, the early kind of give and take moments in the book, because as we come to this book from different disciplinary backgrounds with different expectations of sort of how much context is enough context, this was a point of discussion and negotiation. And we had to kind of come to an agreement about how much was necessary, right? To find a balance between overwhelming a reader and an interdisciplinary audience with way too much historical background, but also ensuring that the subsequent analysis in the chapters that followed was sufficiently grounded. Um, What we ended up doing, what we tried to do was a very quick synopsis of the relevant political and economic history leading up to the 1976 coup. So on March 24, 1976, the military seized power, um, overthrowing the kind of struggling government of Isabel Perón. And then over the next seven years, this regime inaugurated a sustained period of state terror that uh, aimed to eliminate all these perceived enemies of the state, as was mentioned earlier, often grouped together under the category of subversive. And this dictatorship, which was called or which called itself the process of national reorganization, targeted students and teachers, politicians, activists, social leaders, and workers, anyone that they felt might be an obstacle to a sort of right-wing Christian nationalist refoundation of Argentina in the context of the Cold War. So again, there was all also being read through the lens of um, fears of communism, fears of sort of leftists generally. Um, the total death toll during the dictatorship remains a point of debate, and we'll actually talk more about this later because it's relevant to the rest of the book and these acts of commemoration, but the best estimates from human rights groups are 30,000 people were killed or disappeared during the seven-year reign of this dictatorship. Um, Maybe most importantly, what we tried to pull out at the end of that chapter two was what has happened since the return of democracy in 1983 and the contestation of the legacies and meanings of the dictatorship. So over the last now 40 plus years, There have been multiple competing memory frameworks that have interpreted the dictatorship in different ways. Some who have considered sort of regime as a national savior for defeating the threat of communism, right? Um, Some who have considered that both sides, the left and the right, were equally culpable for the political violence of the 1970s and 1980s. And then some who have claimed that the regime was nothing less than state terrorism and that any kind of equivalency between leftist political violence, of which there was some during that period, and the right-wing response is sort of specious. And these memory frameworks have evolved over time, and this last one, this idea of the regime as a sort of institution of state terrorism, has become more dominant since 2003 when uh, Nestor Kirchner was elected president, and then during his wife's 
Christina Kirchner's subsequent presidencies in 2007 and 2011. And the Kirchners collectively embraced this human rights project. They really advanced this notion of the dictatorship as a terroristic state, made it a central part of their own political project. And so in 2015, the end of 2015, just months before the 40th anniversary, which was the background for this research, um, the right-wing candidate Mauricio Macri won the presidential election, defeating a sort of center-leftist Kirchnerista candidate. And so that was really the context behind both the 40th anniversary commemoration in March of, 19, March of 2016, excuse me, but also the research trip that James and Lauren led. That was what was sort of going on in the background, were these competing memory frameworks. Great. Thanks so much, Eddie. Um, Lauren, James, did you want to comment on that question at all, or will we move on? Great. So chapter three, uh, labors of justice as resistance across two university sites. Now this chapter details your research at two sites at the University of Buenos and your study of uh, the visual text, signs and posters um, that conveyed a macro level focus. Yeah. So what what is of particular interest to me is, is how these visual texts, your subsequent analysis and your subsequent analysis act as a conduit between the temporal scales of his historical memory and 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 the contemporary political movements. Could you talk to us a little bit about your study of these visual texts and your findings? Yes, yeah, so I could take the lead with with this one, Matt, and uh, this is James again. Um, and I could start by just stating like the, our three core arguments in the book. You know, the first is that particular kinds of commemorative literacies address historical injustices by repurposing the past to address these present-day political needs, which Eddie um, mentioned earlier. The second argument is that the commemorative literacies, they enact distinct labors of justice at what we determined as resistance, reconciliation, and recovery. While each of these labors of justice were evident in each of their are three focal sites, we identified a, a different labor of justice as most salient for each of the sites. And the third argument is that these particular kinds of commemorative literacies that seek to address historical injustices, they resonate transnationally. Uh, the, the literacies are not only situated on Argentine soil, but they index or point to um, other sites around the world. So the University of Buenos Aires, our first site um, in chapter three, um, we concentrated primarily on the visual texts within these two university spaces. We paid particular attention to the dozens of banners and posters and pamphlets, murals, and other visual artifacts in the hallways and the classrooms. And we used photography and some video recording of our experiences as we moved through these university spaces. Now, as we analyzed that data, particular emphasis on the visual data, um, it was clear that participants in these spaces, you know, the creators and assemblers of these texts, they were mobilizing memory of the past to resist contemporary political processes and economic policies. Um, particular target of that resistance was um, then President uh, Macri. And we discerned two particular themes of resistance. Um, and again, it's important that this that this resistance move between the past and the present. That first form of resistance was resistance to state repression and impunity of military leaders. So for example, there were a number of banners um, that expressed resistance to uh, contemporary security protocols that were related to more you know, proactive policing of protests in the streets. So in other words, you know, the, the memory of past repression during the military dictatorship from 1976 to 1983 was invoked to a voice resistance to contemporary policies that were deemed repressive. For example, there were banners that read, fight against the repression of yesterday and today. Um, we saw a similar mobilization of the past um, when it came to impunity of military or public officials. There are many visual texts that declared, you know, um, contra la punidad de ayer y hoy, you know, we're against the impunity of yesterday and today. Um, and this referred to impunity that some or or many Argentine officials tied to the dictatorship received. Um, and then linking that impunity of the past to cur current day situations. You know, one specific example was a, of a contemporary impunity concern was with a union head, uh, Jose Padraza, who was convicted of killing a member of the Workers' Party, but his sentence was commuted to, to house, resist, uh, house arrest 
which again kind of made this invoke this connection to the past. So the second key theme of resistance was resistance to these unpopular economic policies of, of President Macri, and and more broadly Argentine Argentina's dependence on on transnational capital, uh, namely the International Monetary Fund and the role of the United States in, in that um, in that economic context. So much of that resistance centered on President Macri deciding to negotiate and settle with these vulture fund bondholders, as they came to be called, who held Argentine debt after the 2001-2002 economic collapse. And the role of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the United States played in this process, right? So that role goes farther back in time than 2001-2002, uh, even back to the 1970s to a certain extent. Uh, but there are many visual texts that express this particular critique. So looking across these two themes, we can see how commemorative literacies at each university site highlighted this labor of justice as resistance, resistance to state repression and impunity of, of military leaders, and resistance to, the, to these unpopular economic policies of the then president and Argentina's dependence on capital, on transnational capital. Okay. Thanks so much for that, James. Um, I, I would just like to ask uh, very briefly about um, the use of photography. Now, you mentioned that you were taking photos on that initial trip in 2006, I believe it was. Um, and I was interested to know whether or not the photography came first and you thought, you know, you'd take some shots of what you were seeing um, around, you know, on that initial trip or, and then you looked back at the photos and you thought, hey, maybe I've got something here. Or if it was the other way around, you know, oh, maybe there's a project here. Maybe I should take some photos to maybe potentially revisit it. Um, interested to know how how that kind of came about. Yeah, it really started in 2006 when I was there um, and wasn't aware that there were going to be commemorative events around uh, the 1976 coup and subsequent um, military regime. So I was there at, for a conference um, presenting work and all this was happening in that space. So I had my camera and I just end up taking lots of photos as I would in, in any con context I would be in. But in particular in this place, I was so um, moved, frankly, of the how deeply um, and the visceral the experience was um, engaging with. There wasn't a seemingly there wasn't a square inch of of space in those hallways or classrooms that did not have some signage, something communicating uh, about the importance of of um, of memory and justice and moving ahead and so forth. So I had all these documents, you know, these 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 photos to work with, well over a hundred at the time, and that's what was a catalyst. I had them with me for several years um, before reaching out to Lauren and and wanting to have a conversation about making sense of them. So because of that experience, and we did publish an article uh, making sense of those original photographs in 2006, it was clear to us, as it would be to most people, that um, it would be important to document visually what's happening in those spaces. So we made that a priority on our return in 2016. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Yeah, no, I, I thought that was really um, interesting, you know, for the audience. Um, I believe that all of the photos in the book, including the the front cover are photos that you took yourself, um, which I think is, um, you know, as an amateur photographer myself, um, I found really interesting um, and uh, quite it really added a richness to the to the book. I, I felt that, um, you know, looking at the photos that there was a real, uh, that you know, they're not super highly, you know, professional photos but they're really you experiencing that moment and I think you kind of feel that in the photos um so yeah um I was thought about that a lot when I was reading the book 
Um, so chapter four, uh, labors of justice as reconciliation at the church Santa Cruz. Now I want to ask you about relationships here. Now relationships, I feel come up a lot in the text, um, and in terms of how you're engaging the community, how you're engaging with your sites of study and all of that, but also how you're engaging with each other. So, um, in each of your sites, um, you have, You've come to them through certain relationships previously existed. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about um, how you know how those relationships came about? Because I think that for a lot of academics, particularly early career academics, um, you know, it's so important to be thinking about the ethics of building genuine reciprocal relationships with communities that you're studying. Yeah, this is Lauren. This is Lauren. Uh, I'll I'll go ahead and deal with that one. Um, I would just say briefly that in the United States, any sort of field work involving what it's termed human subjects is required to go through uh, the institutional review board process uh, that's um, quite rigorous or has become quite rigorous. Um, so this question of ethics is sort of built in, at least here in the United States, into uh, the entire uh, process of starting a, a, a project like this. Um, but you, you raised a really great question here, Matt, and, and uh, I guess I might begin my thoughts here by referring to um, somebody who has, um, you know, had a lot of impact in debates around these questions in my field, Robert Morrissey, who teaches at the uh, Rochester University in Chicago. Um, and he, um, he has reflected a lot on the ethics of fieldwork in, in our field. He quotes one of his uh, books, um, Jean-Paul Sartre, as saying something uh, say somewhere some, something to the effect that research is relationship. So if we begin from that understanding, then we have to acknowledge a number of things about fieldwork. First, in any effort to understand others through the method of participant observation, we will be relied on the help of connected others. Um, in an art case, an Argentine colleague and collaborator from South Chicago, whom James has referred to already, Dr. Liliana Zecker, provided us with a critical entree to the Church of Santa Cruz in chapter, the book is our chapter um, four. Um, so Lily had grown up on going to this church and participating in his parish activities. And one of her childhood friends from that time, Father Francisco Mori, eventually became the priest of, of the church. So as we were preparing for this project, and as I raised questions about the role of religion, I mean, I was really interested in, in this um, being a focus of the project. Uh, Liliana told us about the experience of her church during the period of state terror. She introduced us to Father Francisco online um, before we headed to Buenos Aires, and we had some interaction with them ahead of time. And then during our visit, provided, Liliana provided important insight into what we encountered in that state. So she was an important beat-forward insider who also was an outsider because she was teaching in the United States and lived in the United States for a long time. A second consideration that stems from Sartre's point that research and relationship is that people are not asked to be transformed into Mirtila. As we enter into a field, we are entering into and forging relationships with our research participants. And these relationships inevitably will make moral and other kinds of demands on us, which we have to respond in one way or another. Uh, we inevitably become transformed through this process. But perspective shifts as we gain understanding but we also need to grapple with our responsibilities uh, to our interlocutors. At Santa, at Santa Cruz, we gained insight, um, for example, into the important role that church activists played uh, in forming groups like the Matarese de la Plaza, Weathers of the Plaza, and in confronting the regime directly. The military ended up disappearing 12 parish leaders and religious during that dictatorship. Two of them were French nuns, actually, who were working at the church. Fire Maybe their bodies were recovered after washing up on the shore some 280 miles from, from Buenos Aires. Uh, the church in, uh, ended up interning them in, on the grounds of the church, and the graves um, have since become a focal point of the remembrance rituals uh, at the church uh, during the remembrance of the period of state terror. So Santa Cruz challenges the narrative official of official Catholic complicity in that dictatorship. You know, we, it's well known that the church, the official church uh, hierarchy, uh, played a, an essential role in providing legitimacy to the military regime. Uh, and when a current pope um, was um, you know, being considered and elected uh, to his position, um, all of this task came rushing back because he had been a very important um, player in the institutional church. Um, but Senator Cruz challenges his uh, narrative of official Catholic complicity. The complicity happened, certainly. 
but there, but it's more complicated than that, right? A much more complex view of religion in the period of state terror goes um, up and down for us when we immerse ourselves at something. But that immersion also challenged us as U.S. citizens. We felt on fundamental questions of solidarity and justice. In a display at the church, we saw an image of Martin Luther King Jr., for example, displayed alongside an image of Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador uh, and other Catholic martyrs. Uh, Romero's image also appeared in the sanctuary um, next to images of the 12 disappeared parish leaders and priests, um, such as Bishop and Herubin. So these overlapping images in the church um, brought the struggles for civil rights in the United States into direct alignment with the struggles for human rights and accountability in Argentina. Now, I, I experienced this um, also in a very direct way uh, during an interaction I had during the remembrance of the disappeared at the church. Since we were doing the field work in 2016, when we describe this moment in the book, Father Francisco asked during this, this ritual, asked the participants to process around a church with a partner. A young woman approached me and asked, you know, if I would process this her, and I agreed. Um, so as we walked, she began passionately to express her anger at the injustice of the IMS imposed austerity uh, regime and the role of the vulture, vulture capitalist for everything. She was liking all of this, you know, directly to, you know, the period of state terror. Uh, and I found myself, um, you know, responding, you know, stepping. I, I could not any longer play, you know, sort of the disinterested academic. Uh, that's not what I tell you. U.S. realism in, in Latin America and expressing my opposition to U.S. policies in Latin America. All this despite the fact that the U.S. never intervened militarily in Argentina ever. Um, but she was making these connections, right? And it had everything to do with the economic crisis, the role of U.S. firms, the role of the United States, the IMF, and the World Bank, and so forth. At the end of the procession, uh, Father Francisco asked us to reflect on our interviews among ourselves. Um, I used to tell when he took the mic immediately and um, began to express how much it meant to her you know, to speak to a U.S. citizen like me about her feelings of anger. Father Francisco then reflected on the necessity of this, of this sort of truth-telling to any attempt at reconciliation. In a sense, the entire church of Santa Cruz was with its displays of the martyrs and its remembrances of the disappeared was a space constituted um, through this kind of commitment to narratives of truth-telling. And we were immersed in this space, and there was no way that we could not engage, you know, with the terms through which those states had emerged, right, this truth-telling space. So to be in a relationship with the space and with the people in the space in a really authentic, meaningful way meant that we had to engage with its demands for accountability and then and for reconciliation. Um, and I should say reconciliation remains deeply controversial as idea in Argentina. Um, you know, never forget, never forget is is one of the you know main slogans of of Argentines who are committed to the remembrance of the thirty thousand disappeared. But you know. At the Cruz, being a Catholic church, where you have a, a ritual of reconciliation, you know, confession and reconciliation to God and to one another, um, you know, engages this possibility. Um, but it does so, you know, rooted within this kind of truth-telling process, right? There is no reconciliation with it without an equal um, amount of attention being given to justice. Thank you, Lauren. Um, yeah, that 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 concept around re reconciliation and, and your book really looks specifically, you know, obviously the church site that you were at um, is, I believe, steeped in the, the the tradition of liberation theology. So obviously engaging with that concept of reconciliation is, is not about a passive process. It's a, it's a, an active process of, of engaging and, and sort of engaging in that struggle. Did you do want to comment on that as well? Yeah, I mean, just a little quickly. I mean, he said this is another example of the importance of really attending to specificity of, uh, and locality. So in Argentina, um, really, one one of the things that we learned was that, um, at least at Santa Cruz and in the tradition of Catholicism, we refer to as committed Catholicism, um, you know, it was really this idea of the theology of the people, which was an indigenous kind of response to injustice in Argentina. Um, that had a very distinct trajectory in history, right? And it eventually lights up with the region-wide liberation theology movement. Um, but, you know, this again is sort of, you know, we didn't really understand until we were there, um, you know, the history around all of this and the very particular history of Argentina. Um, 
So again, it's sort of this coming back to this idea that through immersion in the space and the relationships that, that develop, you really have to pay attention to the, the particularities of the place. Um, and it opens up really interesting perspectives um, that forced us to, you know, to see a lot of complexity in things like liberation theology, for example. Yeah, absolutely. Did either of you want to comment further on that or shall we move on to the next chapter? Okay. So, uh, Chapter 5, uh, Labors of Justice as Recovery, Individual, Societal, and Spatial Modes of Meaning Making, another really rich chapter. Um, can you talk to us about uh, what you define as your three layers of justice as recovery work and, and how, you, how your work engages with space and temporal scales? If possible, maybe you could sort of touch on the critical role um, of photography in this memory work. Um, and link it back to the other chapters as well, perhaps? Sure, absolutely. So this is Eddie again. Um, so this is our third of three research sites, um, was mentioned earlier. It is a former clandestine detention center, essentially a concentration camp that was run by the military dictatorship at the site of what was then the Naval Mechanics School, so a military academy um, managed by the Navy. And because of its Spanish acronym, it's known as the Exesma, so that's what I'll be referring to it as. Um, it was the largest, the most infamous concentration camp, clandestine detention center. Something like 5,000 people passed through the Exesma during the dictatorship, most of whom were either killed or disappeared. Very few survivors have uh, given us kind of the, the insights that we do have into what went on there during that period. And as part of the Kirchner's human rights agenda, so again, going back to that historical context and the con and the contested nature of um, collective memory frameworks, the way that people in Argentina sort of confront the legacies of the dictatorship, the Exesma was reclaimed as a memory site. It's formally known now as a space for memory and human rights. And so as you mentioned, right, what we identified here are these multiple overlapping layers of recovery that have to do with sort of individual or personal recovery, recovery at a societal level, and then the physical recovery of the space itself. And so one of the things that was going on at the Exesma when uh, the fieldwork was carried out, and again, this is uh, going to this question of relations, an artist, an Argentine artist, had installed an exhibition in one of the halls at the Exesma, and that artist was a family member of Viliana, so this other member of the research team. Uh, she had facilitated our contact with him. I have that right, James, right? Okay, just making sure. Um, she, had, she had facilitated our contact with him, and uh, he was able to kind of give us a tour and an overview of the art installation that he had made for this space in particular. And this art installation was called um, Presencias, Presences. And it had to do with his own individual relationship to the period of state violence. His parents, who had both been leftist activists, were detained by the government actually in 1975, prior to the 1976 coup. And so again, this getting into some of the historical specificities and the need for caution. There are dominant narratives about when state terror takes place, and oftentimes what we find when we look a little bit closer is that those stories are more complicated, right? But in this particular case, um, uh, the artist, Nico Arue, um, Nico's parents had been kidnapped. His mother was pregnant with him when she was taken. Um, she was later released, and he was raised by his mother and his grandparents, but his father remains disappeared to this day. And so the the exhibition was about his own kind of family history, and you asked about photographs. He had taken um, some of the family photographs and created kind of giant silhouette installations, and we have images of this in the book um, that were supposed to kind of invoke a foreclosed past, right? What he had lost as a result of this uh, prolonged campaign of state terror that, as I mentioned, actually precedes the military coup in 1976. But his installation of that exhibit there speaks to this broader understanding of state terrorism is not simply limited by the start and end dates of the dictatorship, but instead uh, responding to when this violence was really occurring. So there was this individual recovery that was implicit in his exhibit, but alongside that, 
the exesma itself has become a space for societal recovery. So the research team was able to talk to various people at the exesma, but one of whom um, was of particular importance, Alejandra Oberti, who works for an organization called Memoria Abierta, which is a human rights organization that was headquartered in the exesma, spoke to this question of how over the last 10 years there have been these sustained efforts to make sense of the collective trauma and then preserve, um, again, at this shared level, kind of archive of experiences, how people lived this dictatorship, right? And so she actually managed the oral history archive of Memoria Abierta, and she offered some really interesting insights that, again, are unpacked in more detail in the book into this effort to collectively remember, right? To collectively recover from this trauma, right? This is not something that is only felt at the individual level. It is something that is felt at the societal level. And then third, just very briefly, the other layer of recovery that's present at the exesma is the recovery of the physical space itself, the reclamation of the buildings. So the exesma has a fascinating history that, again, we unpack more in the book. But in the late 1990s and early 2000s, prior to the Kirchner administrations, there had been a plan to demolish those buildings, to level them, and to kind of create an apolitical park in their place. And that effort was resisted by family members of the disappeared. And over the years, um, with the Kirchner's support after 2003, the exesma was preserved and then kind of reinvested with this new meaning as a site for human rights. And so now most of the most prevalent human rights organizations in Argentina, the Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, as uh, Lauren mentioned earlier, the Abuelas, Hijos, these organizations that are dedicated to kind of confronting the most visible and infamous examples of state terror, the disappearances of people, and the theft of babies, which was one of the practices of the military dictatorship, are now occupying the buildings that were previously occupied by the military regime. And so there is this very conscious reinvestment of those spaces with new meaning that they have now become important spaces of human rights and justice work as opposed to simply empty uh, monuments to the military, the Navy that, that once occupied them. Thanks, Eddie. Um, I, I do find that Chapter 5 is particularly beautiful in its exploration of, of, of poetry, of art, and and also I feel that your analysis, um, the three of you, in, in terms of your writing, uh, matches that poetic um, sort of resonance. Um, so that was probably one of my favorite takeaways from the book was um, you, the three of you and your collective uh, attention to detail, attention to uh, intentionality in your language. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that I made that, remember to make that point uh, there. So uh, chapter six, um, commemorative literacies and labors of justice in Buenos Aires and beyond. Uh, chapter six carries the same name as the book title, Bar A Few Words. Um, this chapter explores the possibilities of transnational lenses uh, grounded in commemorative literacies and labors of justice, pulls together main insights from the preceding chapters and points to the wider implications of the book project. So can you talk to us about this beyond um, how your method of commemorative literacies may be applied uh, beyond? Sure, sure, Matt. And this is James again. Um... This really ties to our, our third main argument in the book, you know, how particular kinds of commemorative literacies that seek to address historical injustices resonated trans transnationally um, in Buenos Aires. And, you know, with this third assertion, you know, these these resonances were, were most pronounced at the University of Buenos Aires, um, where the United States remained a principal target of justice as resistance in those spaces again, with its relationship with the International Monetary Fund. Um, and commemorative literacies and the university sites also express solidarity commitments with justice struggles in Syria and Palestine, for example, and and in so doing, inviting these transnational connections between the remembrance of the Argentine period of state terror and these, these struggles elsewhere. Um, Lauren touched on this a little bit at, at the Church of Santa Cruz. We saw the ways that um, the priest there, Father Francisco, compared the Argentine context uh, to the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa. 
You also linked justice efforts in Argentina with struggles of the Vietnam Vietnamese people um, at the Exesma. Um, there was discussion of human rights networks there that also uh, were really anchoring efforts across Latin America. Um, and our opening vignette in that chapter actually is during the the large march to the plaza on March 24th, 2016, um, and where we met and, and, and talked with some demonstrators who had come from Mexico um, in solidarity with, with um, Argentines. So in terms of the beyond part of the Buenos Aires and beyond, um, we wanted to also outline this method to help understand commemorative ev uh, events in other places around the world. And so we, we, we chose the United States, which is where we reside. Um, and there's a number of commemorative events in the United States that are potentially suitable to explore how commemorative literacies and varied labors of justice might be uh, more directly linked to historical atrocities and ongoing injustices. Um, efforts to abolish and rename Columbus Day here in the United States uh, to uh, Indigenous Peoples Day is just one contemporary example. Uh, the example we consider in the book um, centers on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day here, which is um, in January, where we commemorate his life with a, um, a holiday. And uh, we consider this example of, of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and what happens on this day of remembrance. You know, we can begin with just really basic questions. You know, who is being commemorated? What is being commemorated? When and where do the commemorations take place? Why is the person being uh, or event or time period being commemorated? And then, we, you know, with that grounding, we can then more fully engage with questions about how, you know, how is a person, event or time period being commemorated? You know, what are people saying? What are they writing? What's being posted on social media and in other avenues and other formats? So this is what we identify as commemorative literacies, right? And how can we explore the extent to which um, these different kinds of justice work might be part of these commemorative literacies. So for us, we can ask, you know, uh, do we see any examples of evidence, uh, examples or evidence of justice as resistance during Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, on that day, the events of that day? Um, it is his memory, uh, Dr. King, is it being mobilized to oppose and help you know, dismantle contemporary racist or discriminatory policies and practices, right? So in that case, we might see and hear people linking the memory of Dr. King to the opposition to mass incarceration of people of color in the United States, you know, what Michelle uh, Alexander has called the, the new Jim Crow. And so we're likely to see the memory of Dr. King invoked in protests against police brutality and violence that disproportionately affect communities of color, right? These are all expressions of, of justice as resistance. Uh, and we see the leadership of, of people like Reverend uh, Dr. William uh, Barber uh, with the Poor People's Campaign, for example, maybe best exemplifies like a present day continuation of, of Dr. King's justice work as resistance to racial and economic repression. So that's our first labor of justice. We can think about you know justice as resistance, and we can also consider MLK Day events. You know, to what extent do we see evidence of justice as reconciliation? And this, in part, ties to you know Dr. King's life as a preacher. You know, we can appeal to ideas related to um, radical reconciliation from Christian theological orientation. You know, which injustice as creating the need for reconciliation. Um, and and some are a research around that, you know, where social justice and reconciliation are two sides of the same coin, that kind of perspective. So so we can part of that reconciliation work could be identifying um, in the events of that day, you know, her people reconciling even conflicting narratives about the legacies of slavery in the United States and, and confronting the denial of racism and, and other truth seeking efforts. Um, and, you know, we can certainly, uh, we can see justice as reconciliation and justice as resistance working in tandem, right? These aren't completely discreet. Um, we can see there's a lot of overlap there. Um, but also we can ask about, you know, are there examples of justice as recovery? We look at Dr. Martin Luther King Day Jr. Um, and uh, holiday each year. You know, we might see different facets of this, um, but one manifestation would be calls for, you know, reparations, you know, for African-Americans to recover these vast amounts of wealth 
um, for present day ancestors of slaves who created much of that wealth, right? Uh, we can also, you know, view this idea of recover or recovery in terms of um, an ongoing need to, you know, recover basic voting rights amidst, you know, particular widespread voter suppression efforts within recent years. So we, we see in the in the book, we just kind of walk through that example as just one to to um, think through the possibilities of this type of approach. Thanks for that, James. Um, yeah, I think that this chapter in particular um, really speaks to probably um, my favorite part about the book, which is that you all do such a great job at making the specific feel universal. Um, and, you know, if, you know, our audience are listening and, and thinking about, you know, uh, any element of this, I, of this conversation of your backgrounds, um, in terms of coming to this, this particular project, I do find that this book is very accessible. It's, um, from a number of different sort of perspectives. Um, I definitely felt that, um, you know, uh, there's a whole history of this concept of reconciliation in uh, the Australian context where I'm from. Um, I was raised on stolen Gadigal lands uh, known as Sydney. And, you know, the concept of reconciliation out of particularly the 1990s um, has been mobilized in a certain kind of context. And and that's just one of, of many examples to give, uh, to add a little bit of um, extra commentary around uh, this idea of how well uh, the book makes uh, the, spe the specific feel universal, um, that not just in in how uh, you've laid out your study, but also how you talk about your method um, and how we can really um, think about, uh, particularly in these moments, uh, particularly you know coming out of the resurgence of Black Lives Matter in, in 2020, which had a global sort of impact and um, you know, you would have already been working on the project, but, you know, there was all these questions about statues and, and how we sort of mobilize memory and how we, who and how we create memory. And obviously as a teacher, that's a crucial question that you're thinking about all the time in terms of who and how you're presenting history in any context, regardless of the subject matter. So, um, I just really wanted to, to underscore, uh, that point and, um, just, um, you know, give you guys those props um, as well. Thank you much. Uh, I really appreciate that, Madden. Yeah, no worries. Um, look, uh, we are wrapping up for time, but we've got two more things that we need to do before we do indeed do that. Um, I need to give you guys the opportunity to talk about what you're working on next. Um, and before we do that, um, I would love to just hear just just even just a little bit of commentary around what's going on in Argentina uh, right now and, and how this book uh, can inform how we're, what we're reading in terms of current uh, uh, Argentinians going back to the Poland booths. Yeah, I can take a crack at that contemporary current events Argentina. Um, it is a pretty dynamic and fraught situation in Argentina at the moment. There's a presidential election in October of this year, 2023. And as of right now, they just had their primaries um, a couple weeks ago, and the two leading vote-getters were the two farthest right candidates. We're coming off now four years of Peronist center-center-left uh, government in Argentina, and owing to a host of structural problems, economic in, um, in nature, Argentina has not been doing particularly well over the last four years, and that has been compounded by the pandemic and a pretty severe drought that's really crippled Argentine exports over the last two years. And so people are incredibly frustrated. Inflation is running out of control. And it remains to be seen if these two vote-getters, especially the farthest right-wing candidate, who is a libertarian candidate named Javier Millet, if the votes for those candidates in the primaries were sort of protest votes or expressions of frustration, or whether those will really translate into results in the October presidency. But both uh, Patricia Bullrich, who is the one right-wing candidate, and Malay, who's the other, 
have talked a lot about these uh, questions around the legacy of the dictatorship. Both of them question the 30,000 figure. Both of them um, have spoken about deploying the Argentine military in Argentine cities to deal with uh, perceived crime problems and um, really related to narco gangs in certain cities. And in Argentina, recently coming off this history of military dictatorship, the idea of deploying the military in civilian neighborhoods is a pretty uh, contentious issue, to say the least. And so it remains to be seen what's going to happen. Um, but certainly these questions around legacies of dictatorship remain very present and very much informing and shaping uh, what is happening in the political landscape right now. Thanks, Eddie. Um Eddie, do you want to go uh, jump straight into what you're working on now, what we need to look out for? Sure, yeah. I uh, am hoping that my own monograph will be in progress and maybe approaching completion sometime the next year. As I said, I work on labor legislation and labor movements during the dictatorship, so uh, that's the next goal. We'll see how far out it is, but but ideally maybe the next year or two. James? Sure. Uh, I've been working for a long time on issues related to climate change and climate change denial, and recently finished a book that's been published by Teachers College Press. It's called How to Confront Denial, How to Confront Climate Denial, um, and how we can move from confronting climate denial to advancing um, ecological justice. Right. And Lauren? Oh, thanks, Lyle. And thank you for this conversation, by the way. It's just been very stimulating and generates sort of great buzzes as well, um, both the conversation and, and the preparation and engagement for it. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I had this uh, uh, follow-up project in Denmark and Sweden. I'm calling it Nordic Palestine and looking forward to, um, you know, sort of seeing how the Palestinian experience offers amongst online debates and struggles within the European community around immigrants, immigration, particularly Arabs and Muslims, uh, following the 2011 what crises. Um, and, uh, you know, so there's there's that work that's ongoing. I'm a little bit of collaboration with Terrence on some of the climate work. Um, and we should focus with that. And, um, that's kind of more in an exploratory change at the moment. Right. That all sounds really exciting. Um, we'll have to look out for all of those those projects as they come um, come to fruition. So um, what I also want to just mention is that there is an accompanying short documentary film developed by one of uh, your colleagues, uh, which is accessible via Vimeo. I watched it earlier last week, and it was a really strong visual accompaniment to the text. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll try to get that in the show notes as well. Um, so thank you again for coming to talk with me today, James, Lauren, and Eddie. Um, we've been talking about commemorative literacies and labors of justice, resistance, reconciliation, and recovery in Buenos Aires and beyond, published in 2022 by Routledge. It's available online from Routledge and some other uh, online sellers. Um, I've been your host, Martin Gilhuli, and this has been the New Books Network in Education on uh on the New Books Network. Uh, As we uh, hope uh, you'll join us next time. Thanks so much.